Yeah, we just have a blessing. Um, I get the pleasure of introducing to you uh, Clay Adkinson from Fellowship Little Rock. I had to make sure I said the right fellowship. There's like so many now. So uh, Clay is a good friend of Chad and um, just uh, loves the message of grace. Um, is a man that uh, just really loves that message and is gonna has a word from, from the Lord to, to share with us this morning. And I'm um, really excited to have him here. Uh, if those of you who don't know, um, Fellowship Little Rock uh, was integral in planning Fellowship Jonesboro. So we have you know, a long history with them, and we're just really glad to have him here to share with us. So, Clay, will you come up and um, ask him if he had any, like, cool facts about himself or anything, like feats of strength or anything? And he didn't say anything, so um, I was ready to, like, give you some cool info, but I don't have anything. No feats of strength. No feats of strength. No. I'm pretty weak, really. He may sneak that into the sermon. I haven't worked out in about four months. Is this confession time? Are we already there? (laughs) Uh, Uh, Why don't y'all give a hand to Clay and thank him for coming and speaking to us? Thanks. Well, good to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, I'm from Fellowship Little Rock, where I work with small groups there. So it's good to get a chance to preach God's Word. I count it as a privilege. Uh, and it's, it's a privilege especially to be here because uh, early on in my being in Little Rock, I met Chuck Geschwind, and he was doing some stuff here through this church, trying to get other churches in Arkansas and Tennessee to come together around the gospel. And so that's how I met Chuck, got familiar with your church, been up here many times for different meetings and trainings. And so it's a, y'all have blessed me unknowingly. And so I hope today through God's word, I'm able to, to bless y'all and to give back a little bit. So we're going to be in Romans 7 and then parts of Romans 8. I'm really going to talk about something uh, that God's really taught me just this year. I really grasped this concept. I mean, if y'all, as you're turning there, think about this. I mean, have you ever had a time? Where God just showed you something about himself and it changed your relationship with him? I mean, we've all got those moments, these key things in our faith that God was doing and drawing us to himself and showing us who he is. And one of the things I'm going to get to talk about today is one of those things in my life just this year. And something that Chad and I have been talking about together. uh, This relationship of God's law and God's gospel. And God really has these two words that he speaks throughout all scripture. Uh, His law and things that he's calling us to do and how to live. Uh, And then also the good news because we actually can't do what the law requires us to do. But many times as Christians, we get it mixed up. We start mixing them together, start using them in different ways than we're supposed to use them. And something that God's really revealed to me this year through his word, through other people, uh, is there's a distinction between law and gospel. And we can't mix them together because when we do, it becomes extremely dangerous in our lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about. But as you're thinking about that moment in your life, for me, about 10 years ago, I understood grace for the first time. And you know where I was? In my second ministry job in a church plant. And I'm a pastor. And I didn't know grace. I didn't really know the gospel. And I'm in gospel ministry. And so I'm sitting there and we're at our church plant and the first year went really well. We had like a hundred people. We were in a town much similar uh, to Jonesboro that had a university, Texas State. We were in San Marcos. Uh, a cool place, but very dark. Uh, not a lot of great churches. And we're here trying to you know, bring the gospel. And, and we're, we were doing a pretty good job uh, in year one. And you know what we thought? We're big time. We're doing this. We got a hundred people. We got the best music in town. We're preaching God's word. We're something. And really quickly, God showed us we are not. 
And in the in that second year of church planning, got really hard. And then we started and we, and we started to shrink a little bit, lose some people. Some people are like, "This is really what you're going to be about," and, and left us, and that hurt. And in the midst of that hurting, in the midst of trying a bunch of things in ministry, trying to get it to work, I was just found myself in my apartment one day, just broken, just like confused. God, you've called me here to do this. It was going really well, but now it's not. You must be displeased with us. We must be doing something wrong. What is it? Because I want to do great things for you. I want to do this. And you know what he showed me? In Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, he showed me that he's done everything for me. And that it's not about what I can do for him. But it's about what God has already done through me, through Christ Jesus. And I sat there, a pastor, in my second year, third year in ministry, realizing what the gospel of grace really meant. And so grace that day, through reading Ephesians 1, about all the blessings that we have in Christ right now. And everything that God has given us through Christ, we can experience a piece of it now. And that then I got into Ephesians 2, and it talks about, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I didn't really think I was dead. You know, I thought when God found me, I was kind of drowning a little bit, you know, and I'm trying to struggle through and I'm reaching up to God. I was dead. And a dead person cannot resurrect themselves, can they? And so then in that moment, I I felt the flooding rush of God's grace. The burden was lifted off of me that it wasn't about what I could do for God. It wasn't about keeping the rules. It wasn't about being a quote-unquote good person, but that it was about trusting in the person and work of Jesus and what He has done for me and to receive His grace, His righteousness, His perfect record, a new identity in myself that he's given me to now express and to love God and to love my neighbor. And so this was very freeing in my life. And as it's been 10 years in, that you keep unfolding these different wrinkles because we can't exhaust the gospel, right? We'll never graduate from it. We grow deeper in it. And as we grow deeper in it, we see more of who God is and who we are and how much the cross really means in our life. How much grace really matters. And so I want to just use some definitions today, okay? What are we talking about? What do we mean about grace? What do we mean about gospel? What do we mean about law? Let's set up some working definitions. So I want to use this one for grace. One of my favorites. It says, uh, grace is unconditional acceptance giving to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. So that was from Tolian Tavidjian in his book, One Way Love, which was really instrumental a couple years ago in my life. Uh, and what that means is grace comes to me... Regardless of what I do, it is unconditional acceptance. It doesn't matter about me because I'm an undeserving person. I'm not worthy to be saved by the Lord Jesus. And that He didn't have to do it. And those seem like harsh words, right? But then you read it back through with grace. Grace is God's unconditional love to us. That despite who we are, this holy, righteous, and awesome God wants a relationship with dirty broken, messed up people. What? That's completely backwards from what I grew up with. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, in the South where we're all good people and go to church, right? And the goal was to be a good person. Well, the goal of the Bible is to show you you're a bad person. And that there's a lot of bad people. Think about all the heroes of the Bible. They all have major, major flaws. But what's the good news? God loves them and works through them anyway. To accomplish his purposes in this broken world we find ourselves in. And that's great hope, love, and grace that we can't experience anywhere else than the Lord Jesus Christ. So then what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news for those who recognize their need of who Jesus is and what he's done in saving us. 
So the gospel is good news. It's not good advice, but it's good news of a real person. Jesus came down in the flesh. That's the season we're here celebrating, right? The incarnation. That God would break into time and history to do something about our sin problem. To do something about the brokenness of his creation. Because he loves it so much that he actually becomes a part of it. Have you ever thought about that part of the incarnation? That the God who created it, the creator becomes part of the created That's just mind-blowing stuff. Why would he come and do this? Why? Because he wants to bring good news to a broken creation, to a people that he created to be in relationship with that he desperately loves. But we, and the second, next part of the definition is for those who recognize their need. For a long time, I didn't recognize my need. The gospel to me, growing up in the church, was just news. Wasn't good. And the reason it wasn't good news is because I didn't believe I was an undeserving person. I didn't believe I was really that bad. You know, I hadn't done a lot of major bad things in my life. I can't be that bad. But it's innate in us, sin. We're born with it. We have a problem. And we can see that from early age in our children, right? What's the first thing you have to teach your kids? Anybody? This could be interactive. What's the first thing they like to say to you then? How about that? No. Did we teach them to do that? No, it's innately in them. They don't want to do what we tell them to do as the authority that God has put in their lives. They start biting their brother and sister. We don't tell them. Did they see me biting Mandy, my wife right here? I hope not. That's weird, right? I mean, they just, they just innately do this stuff. That's mine, right? And they like wake up early and get all the toys they want to get and they hug them and they hold on to them. Mine. That's built into us, right? So it comes to those who recognize their need that we really do have a problem in our lives and we can't solve it. But Jesus and who he is, God coming down into creation, breaking into real time and space as a real person to do something about our problem is amazing grace. And that he would live the perfect life we can't. That he would die in our place on the cross. That should have been me and you. As undeserving people. He's the deserved one, the holy one. And he goes on the cross for us. Man, that's extremely good news. And he does the work that we couldn't do. And then we get his righteous record. God sees you if you're in Christ as holy and blameless. That is amazing grace. That is good, good news to bad news people, right? But you got to see your need. And so that's where this distinction comes in of law and gospel. The law does some things in our life. There's three things we're going to talk about. The first thing we're going to talk about is this. If you look in Romans 7, and it's in verses 7 through 11, it talks about how the law is not sinful, but it brings knowledge of sin. The law is good and perfect. It is God's word. When you think law, let's talk about this example. I went a little too far. This example of the law is this, or definition. And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments or God's moral law. And that Jesus sums up that law by loving God and loving your neighbor. And so that's what we mean by law, because there was civil law, ceremonial law that the Jews followed. But that when Jesus fulfilled the law for us, those things kind of fell away. But God's moral law is still what should guide us. It's still the thing we should live by. But the thing is, we can't do it. We can't do it. So this law-gospel distinction is important because we need to know how to use the law, how it's used in our life, believers and unbelievers alike. And so the first thing is that it brings knowledge of sin. It calls sin what it is. 
what we don't want to call it because we love to justify it. We love to, you know, I'm not that bad because, you know, this, this, and this. And we just work it out in our minds that we're just not sinners, that we're not bad people. And so the law comes in and names sin for what it is. I mean, we've been teaching our kids the Ten Commandments. And uh, the Fourth Commandment, they break a lot. It's called honor your father and your mother. And we let them know that a lot, that they are lawbreakers. And that's a good thing in their life because on the other side of them realizing they're lawbreakers is the gospel. That Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law for them and has died for their sins. And in him there's forgiveness and life. But we get ahead of ourselves. So let's read verse 7. It says, uh, What shall we say then? What, uh, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if we had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So some people say ignorance is bliss. But in this case, ignorance is blindness. It's not a good thing to be ignorant of God's law and what He calls us to do. And who He calls us to be. It's blindness because that's what sin does. Sin deceives. Sin blinds us to the reality of our life. It, 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 sin allows us to justify sin in our life and think that we're okay. But God's law will have none of that. It exposes us. If we read on in verse 8 and verse 11, there's a key phrase that comes out that sin seizes an opportunity. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness, Paul says. In verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That's what Paul is saying about the law and what it's doing in his life. It's revealing that he is in fact a sinner in need of God's good grace. But again, sin causes us to be blind. Sin actually allows us to say we're good and God's law is not. What he's calling us to is bad and that we're actually the good ones. We get it totally messed up. But the law continues to press in upon us that, no, this is who we are. And again, we're born with it, right? We're born with the innate thing, wanting to be self-autonomous people. I want to be the authority in my life. You don't tell me what to do. Uh, God, even God, God, this book can't be authoritative in my life. This can't be real. You know, this isn't over me telling me what to do. Who is God that he can tell me what to do? I mean, just the creator, right? Who created me and wants a relationship with me. But other than that, I mean, what has he really got to say in my life? I want to be boss of me. We all want to be it. The, the greatest lie is that we would want to be self-autonomous, that we would want to be self-ruling, that we want to be in isolation. And guess what? We live in a culture that's rampant with that, Right? And we're supposedly the most connected culture in all time because of social media and the internet and all that. But they give us just enough of fake relationship on the internet to think we're actually connected to people. While many of us, myself included, are lonely in our homes. Lonely in our relationships. Forgetting how to connect with someone face to face anymore. And part of that is because we want that. We want to be, I don't want you telling me what to do. If you get too close to me, you might see that I'm actually broken. And I'm trying to put up a big front right now that I'm good. I'm good. I got this. But God's law won't have it. It keeps pursuing us. It keeps revealing to us that we can't do it. That we were made to be under the rule of another. And that we need someone speaking to us as broken, sinful people. What's true? What's good? What's right? How to live in this world that God has created for us, even though it itself is broken. So we need the law in our lives to reveal sin and to call sin what it is. The second thing is this. The law is good and it, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't bring death, but it exposes death in us, showing us our desperate condition. 
So the law is good. It doesn't produce the death in us, but it exposes the death that's already in us and the sin that's working in our lives. It shows us our desperate condition. Look at verse 13 in Romans 7. I did that which is good, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, check this out, might become sinful beyond measure. So the law is going to press in upon you so much and won't let you get away with saying sin is not sin. And it's going to come after you that you become sinful beyond all measure. I was taught as a kid, if I followed the law, that that would make me good. That is not what scripture is telling us here. Scripture is boldly saying that when the law comes in, it's going to press in and show us we're so much of a sinner that all we can see left and right is that I covet this, I covet that, I want your house, I want your car, I want your wife, I want this, I want that, I want that. And I start to see that I am sinful beyond measure, which means I'm worse off than I think I am. I'm worse off than I think I am. And that this is actually a good thing that God is doing in our life to rescue us from who? Us. You're your biggest problem in your life. I'm the biggest problem in my life. What's the common denominator in all my relationships and everything that's going on in my life? Me. But because sin is so blinding, so deceitful, we don't believe it. And because we want to be self-ruling and disconnected from others, we don't have people or anybody in our life to tell us otherwise. Or if they do, we just don't believe them because we think we're awesome. You're not awesome. God is awesome. Right? And there's good news, and it's coming, y'all. I'm just I'm going to keep pushing it. The law is working its purpose. The law works like a mirror in our life. It works like a mirror, okay? When you look into the mirror, hey, this morning when you got up, what did you see in the mirror? You saw who you really were, not who I'm seeing you as right now, right? I mean, a lot of y'all woke up, and your hair was crazy. Bedhead going nuts. Girls, y'all got up, and you're like, oh, my gosh. I, I'm, I mean, you put chemicals on your face to cover it up, Right? I mean, we do this. So the law works like that, right? The law works like we wake up in the morning and we see who we really are. And then we have to go fix ourselves up to go show us to everybody else, right? That's the law. It's working as a mirror. It's right here saying, you are a sinner. You have a desperate need. You need help. But we just want to shatter that mirror. We want to throw it away. As people get closer to us, we want to push them away in relationship because they can't see me for who I really am. Because what will they really think? Will they accept me? Will they love me? Will they care for me? We're so scared to admit who we really are and that we have a desperate need. But God's law comes after us and says, no, this is a reality. God has put people in your life to to hold God's word up as a mirror in your life to say, this is who you are and you need help. And there is good news for that help. So the law works as a mirror and sometimes we just can't see it for what it is. And you know what the funny thing is? Sometimes then we'll use the law in the wrong way. Instead of using it as a mirror, sometimes we just use it as, uh, you know, something that we're going to live our life by and think that we can actually accomplish. This is one of the greatest dangers in the South, is that we just make up our own rules. Well, I can't keep the Ten Commandments, you know, because, I mean, there are some gods I have before God, like Netflix and other things that consume my life. But, you know, I can make a little list that I can keep. Well, kind of, right? At least in what we define as keeping the law. So I won't do this. I won't do that. And it's like I won't go to rated R movies. I won't listen to this music. I won't do that. And then I'll think, I'll call that God's law. You have cheapened God's law. 
You have lowered the bar to something you think you can keep. And even then, we know deep down, we can't keep the rules we set for ourselves, can we? But we'll sure judge other people by it, won't we? And we, we judge people by a law we can't even keep. It's messed up. And that's what the law does. It shows us. It's a mirror showing us we have a big problem. And we are sinners in need of desperate help. The last thing is this uh, about the law. The law can point out or diagnose the problem, but it doesn't give us the ability to carry it out. So that's big time to realize this part of the law. It can point out, diagnose, you're a sinner, you have a problem, here's the mirror, look, you've got a problem. But it can't give you the power ability to overcome that problem. So God's law functions in a very specific way to expose sin in us that's producing death that's going to lead to an eternal death if we don't wake up to the reality that there is a God who loves us and who has created us and wants a relationship with us and has given us a means to accomplish His law. So we can't carry it out. And guys, this is where I lived out. I mean, Paul says it right here in Romans seven eighteen through 19. For I knew that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, where sin resides. For I have the desire to do what is right, because God's law has been given to me, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil thing I want to do is what I keep on doing. I mean, this Paul is diagnosing the human problem right here. We, got, we know what we should do, but there's something messed up in me that really wants to do this. I know God's calling me to do this, but maybe I kind of want to do this over here. Because I think that life is found here in this other thing that I think is good for me. Not what God says is good for me. That's messed up. We're sinners. So then if I try to take the law, which is good, and then apply it to my problem... What am I doing? I'm taking a set of rules, but I haven't changed, have I? Has my heart changed from wanting those things? No, it hasn't. Now I have a set of rules to prove more that I'm a sinner. And this is what happened to me early on in the church and why I walked away for a season. I grew up in the church. Every time the doors were open, all this, hit middle school and high school, had no idea how God spoke to my everyday life. Church was something I came to and that I lived the rest of my life throughout the week. But I didn't see how they connected. How does God inform my everyday life? How does this stuff work? And here's why I'm convinced. Because this is what people told me, either directly or indirectly, by not being explicit about the gospel. They said, Jesus saves you now, His grace. Now you need to... And just listed out a bunch of rules that I needed to keep. And so then I thought, Jesus saves me, and that justifies me. But now in this part of sanctification, it's all on me. It's about me being a good person, about me doing what is right, and applying these rules to my life. But guess what I left? The power to do it. The gospel gives us the power to keep God's law. And that's the good news that we're going to get to right now. Guys, life doesn't have to be this way, lived under the law. It doesn't have to be that we're crushed by the law every day. It doesn't have to be that we are unable to keep what God has called us to do because He has broke into our real time and space incarnation we're getting ready to celebrate to save us from this, to save us from ourselves, to save us, save us from His wrath against sin. To be able to do what God's called us to do, He had to break into real time and space and do something about the sin in my life, in your life, and that's what He does. It's good news that while sin remains, the power of sin, Jesus is broken by his life, his death, and his resurrection. His perfect life for us, 
Sin produces death, so he dies for us. And then he resurrected because he overcomes the grave for us. And this is the hope. And then he takes that Holy Spirit and puts it inside of us. And the Holy Spirit starts applying the gospel to us, changing us and shaping us into the people God wants us to be, that we can actually keep this law that he's called us to, which Jesus sums up as loving God and loving your neighbor. So let's talk real quickly about three things the gospel produces in us. Running into Romans 8, these are some of the best words in the whole Bible. Romans 8, 1, you probably know it. There is now for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Can I get an amen out there? I mean, good night, y'all. This is good news. This is real stuff. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. How many of you walk in here feeling condemned and that you're not good enough? Well, that's the law working in your life. And maybe you need to hear that. But you don't have to stay there. Jesus Christ has done something about that sin, dying for it on a cross, his blood spilling for you, that he might give you his spirit, his righteousness, a new identity, a power in your life to actually do what he's called you to do. That is good news this morning. He sets us free. Well, what does he set us free to do? If I'm now free from sin, at least the power of it, I know it's still there, but if I'm free from the power of it and I can now choose to do what God's called me to do, what has he called me to do? And here's the funny thing. Keep the law. Now he has freed me from the condemnation and the weight of the law. And he's now empowered me to live out and keep his law, which he describes as loving God and loving neighbor. I can now love God. Why? Because God first loved me and broke in and gave his son for my life. And now I can love God because he's given me those new affections and a new heart for him. And it starts changing me. Now this love that I experienced from God that I can't experience from any of you starts changing me. And now I want to take that and pour it out to you, my neighbor. And now I want to love you as God has loved me. And I want to start loving my neighbor. So we're free to do that. Not free to sin. God's grace doesn't set you free that now you can do whatever you want. It actually sets you free to do what he wanted you to do in the first place. That you were unable to do. But now through Christ, he is enabling you to love God and love your neighbor. He sets us free. You know what else he sets us free to do? To still say we're a sinner. I think this is one of the things that church needs the most right now. Church folks are afraid to say they're still sinners. They want to go out and present a front to people out there that they're good. We need to go out there and show people our weakness and brokenness because that's when the gospel speaks to them. When we identify to them and say, I am not unlike you. But let me tell you what has changed me. Christ Jesus, not me. What he has done for me. So we're free to say that sin still remains, but the power of it's been broken. Sin still remains, but I don't carry that condemnation and shame anymore. Sin still remains, but it does not define me. Jesus Christ defines me. He has set me free. And he gives you something I think is really key, a new identity. No longer do we have to define ourselves by our religious performance. No longer do we have to define ourselves by trying to keep up appearances. But we can let it all down and say, this is who I am. And God says, I love you and I accept you because of Christ Jesus. And he sets us free. Free to, I can get up here before you now and say, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up. But Jesus Christ died for all that and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to live loving God and loving neighbor. It's, it's freedom. 
And here's who he says we are in Ephesians 1. I love it, I love it, I love it. He says this is who you are in Christ Jesus because he gives you gifts. The gospel gives us gifts to live this life he's called us to. Here's who we are, Ephesians 1, 1 through 15. Uh, By his will and good grace to us, he lavishes on you. Think about that word. Lavishes on you these things in Christ. Your chosen, holy, blameless, loved, adopted, redeemed, forgiveness of sins is there. You have an inheritance in the life to come in the new heaven, the new earth that cannot be taken from you. And a promise of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee, a deposit right now that proves that to be so. And the power of the Spirit then speaks out to us, reminding us who we are. He reminds us who we are. It's good news. Uh, in Romans three or eight three through four, it talks about Jesus' work for us. That Jesus saves us by His work. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So He's admitting the law can't save you. But then He had to send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here we see we've been set free in Jesus to walk now according to the Spirit. That the Spirit is the one at work in us now through Christ Jesus. So what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit, let's get into the last point here. The Spirit applies the gospel to us, uh, giving us life and peace. That's what Romans 8, 5 through 8 says. The Spirit applies the gospel to us. Because for a long time in the Christian life, you probably heard this, right? Hey man, just go walk in the Spirit. Hey man, you live by the Spirit? And for a long time, I'm like, what the heck does that mean? I have no idea. What that means, even growing up in the church. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? Well, it's simply this. We've got to know who the Spirit is, third member of the Trinity, now coming to dwell in you who raised Jesus from the dead. And what is He applying to you? What, what is He doing in your life? He's giving you the gospel every day. He is reminding you because we are sinners who are deceived by our sin because it's still there, right? And we forget who we are. We're gospel amnesiacs. That's what Paul Tripp says. We forget who we are in Christ. So the Spirit's work in our life is to constantly remind us this is who you are in Christ. This is what He's done. It's applied to you. We see later in Romans 8 that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, that we are God's children now. This is who He makes us. And so the Spirit every day is working in our life to produce people who love God and love their neighbor. He's applying the gospel. It's the power that the, that the law lacked. Jesus fulfills the law for us and then gives us His Spirit to actually be able to love one another. Now, we don't do it perfectly, right? We don't. And in those moments, because we're free to say we're a sinner, I can apologize to you and repent. Which means I can apologize to you that I hurt you and I've wronged you. And then I can turn to God in belief saying, but this is still who I am in Christ. Love, chosen, adopted, redeemed child of God. That's power in our lives. This new identity He gives, the power of Jesus' finished work, the power of the gospel in everyday life. So here's just really closing what it's, what it's done in my life. Now let me talk about the two things again. Because we still have sin remaining, right? I can choose right now to walk out of this building and walk in my flesh, which is sin. Or I can choose to walk out of this building and walk in the Spirit that's calling me to believe the gospel and to be renewed in my mind and in my heart. But when I walk in the flesh, here's what happens. When I walk in the flesh, I do not... I do this. I I start seeking others' approval to find my identity and my work, not Christ. When I'm walking in the flesh, I will use others instead of serving others. To meet my needs, not their needs. It looks like I'm serving them on the outside. It looks good. 
But I'm really, it's self-serving because I want them to think I'm awesome. This is when I'm walking in the flesh. I will go to self-righteous law-keeping to keep a made-up set of rules to save me. Which really have no power. But they make me think I'm powerful. They make me think I'm in control. I like it. But that's walking in the flesh. I will ask my wife to be my love, hope, and dreams and be everything for me. And when she doesn't do it, I'll punish her. That's sinful. I will try to make my kids follow my law at any cost. Just get in line and do what I say. That's not very loving. That's not a great picture of God to them, is it? Now again, there's a time for the law, but there's a time for the gospel. So I will try to make my kids do that. I'll look for comfort and food and slothfulness and just sitting on the couch and vegging out to like nine seasons of something on Netflix. Thinking that my hope and comfort is found there. But I wake up the next day and the stuff that I thought that was coping with last night, it's still there. That's walking in the flesh. And I need God's law to come in and remind me what? I'm a sinner. It puts it right in my face. I have people in my life who can say, Clay, this is what's happening in your life. And they can call me back to belief in the gospel. And so here's what it looks like when I wake up and I'm walking in the gospel. When I'm walking in the spirit who's telling me who I am in Christ and what he's done. This is what it frees me to do. On those days, I can admit wrongs to others. And that um, I can tell them that I'm sorry, I'm wrong, I'm messed up. I can at work say, I didn't do everything that I could do today. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to do better tomorrow. I can admit those things. I can admit that I'm a sinner. I'm free to lovingly confront others because I'm not seeking their approval anymore. That's big for me. That I can actually go to you and say, hey, I see this in your life and because I love you, I need to say it. Because at that moment, I'm more concerned about the gospel working in their life than they're feeling my idolatry of uh, approving me. That's freedom. That's life. That's what people are longing for to see. I can love my wife without seeking something in return and show her the grace of God even when she doesn't do it to me. I can love my kids when they don't obey my every command and pointing out, pointing them to the one who's kept the commands perfectly for them. Uh, I can I not seek comfort on my couch and zoning out every night uh, to late night snacks and whatever. And I can engage my wife. I can engage my kids. I can be present. I can be in the life of other people because I don't have to be isolated anymore. I can say to myself that I, uh, I am a self-righteous sinner, but that doesn't define me. And I can turn to belief in the gospel that Jesus and his finished work is powerful and defines me. So we can see here, it's really dangerous stuff when Christians mess up what the law is and what it does and what the gospel is and what it does. So we need both of them. Again, we can, sometimes we'll skew gospel or we'll skew law. We need law and gospel and applying them to our lives and letting God work. And I pray that his spirit is working in which one you need right now. And that there's power in God and what he can do in our lives. And that the gospel defines us. He fulfills the law, the very thing that he's calling us to do. If we are willing to admit that we're sinners in great need. And that God has met that need in Jesus Christ. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the law because it is good. It tells us what we're supposed to do. That we'd have no other gods before you. That we would not take your name in vain that we would honor our fathers and mothers, that we would not covet the things of our neighbor, but serve our neighbor. You call us to these things, but we can't do it alone because we're, we're sinners. Sin still remains even though you've broken the power. And I thank you that you've broken the power of sin, that we might actually be able to 
love our neighbor, to love you back for all the things that you've done for us, not in a debtor's way, but in a child's way, because we're adopted into your family and you love us like a good, good father. It's who you are. And we're loved by you. It's who we are. So, Father, may we walk in the spirit of your gospel today. May the spirit apply all these things to us that we may now go out from this place because it's not over. Worship is everyday thing. And you give us the power to do it, to go out and love God and love our neighbors for the sake of the gospel, that people might be set free to experience no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but experience life and peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to worship uh, through the taking of communion. Uh, something we do every week at fellowship. So um, for guests and uh, just practical instruction, in the front half of the room, if you'll go to these two tables, the back half of the room, if you'd go to those two tables back there and just tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And then um, just going to be in an attitude of reverence as we remember um, Christ's sacrifice for us and the love he has through, through the gospel. So. I'm going to pray for uh, communion and then we'll begin. Father, I just pray that as we take communion this morning that you would just remind us and encourage us of your gospel and how you've made the law perfect. And that you use your word as a sharp sword in our hearts to bring us to you. So, Father, speak to us. Remind us of your sacrifice.